0: You are listening to UWA alumni's Pursue Inclusion podcast series. Thanks for downloading this episode. UWA is committed to an inclusive society where every life is respected as unique and valuable. Visit our website at pursueinclusion.uwa.edu.au to see how you can join with others in the UWA community to create positive change.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Pursue Inclusion UWA initiative in conjunction with Executives After Hours podcast. Today on the show, I have the pleasure to have Mr. Michael Sheldrick, Global Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Global Citizen out of New York. Hey, Michael, how are you? Hey, James. Yeah, great, great to be here with you. Thank you so much for uh, getting up early. I know it's about 7.30 your time right now, so I appreciate you uh, doing this call. Uh, Did you get your coffee yet?
0: No, I've I've only had a chance to grab some water, but I might sneak off halfway through to get some coffee, but um, (laughs) the benefit of working in a global organization is you tend to work across different time zones. It's it's not good for your sleep patterns, but it means you're very accustomed to early morning or, or late evening calls.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I know most of my, you know, I'm in the Middle East and, you know, 90% like this to me is a treat to do a podcast in the afternoon. Most of my podcasts are between like eight and 11 o'clock at night. So, so Michael, one of the things I think is amazing is that, you know, you have to do these meetings from around the world. And I, and I was saying that, you know, I do most of my podcasts in the evening, which the challenge is, is you have to kind of be fully present. And in the work that you do at two in the morning, if you're in a meeting, like, do you find it sometimes a challenge to kind of, like, be awake?
0: Yeah, I, I, do, I do sometimes, but to be honest, I feel like this, is, this was one of the many benefits of um, studying in Perth while also working for Global Citizen. I, um, in my final two years at UWA, I actually started working, you know, for Global Citizen, Well, we were then called the Global Poverty Project. And um, I would find myself, you know, studying, going to lectures during the day, And basically, you know, my working day would start from 9 p.m. at night, right? Because a lot of the calls and a lot of the activity was happening out of New York. I would wake up random hours of the night. I I always remember this time when I got on the phone at 9 p.m. and it came to 5.30 a.m. My dad was getting up for work and he said, you know, have you been been up the whole time? And I uh, said, you know, I suppose I have. So in some respects, it made you a bit of a non-social (laughs) or <laughs> anti, <laughs> but it, it prepared me. Well. Um, but it was, you know, it was a nice thing to, you know, when everyone else was getting up to go into work, you, you were going to bed. But yeah, so, so it, it taught me well growing up in Perth.
1: So, so let's let's back up a little bit. Then you know, part of part of your story is 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 your your history, right? Like we are a culmination. Now, listen, you are close to a spring chicken. Um, but not a full spring chicken. You've got some experience behind you, where you know I'm I'm a little bit more weathered. But I spent um, four years in Perth getting my PhD. Which is how oh. I kind of got ro- roped into doing this. Pleasurably though. So. <laughs> Rope sounds like I was forced. <laughs> Pleasurably doing this. But what was life like for you growing up? Did you have siblings? Like, was your parents a huge role model? Like, let's start, like, do you have, si- do you have siblings?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I've got an older sister. She's two years older than me, um, Kelly. And, and then I've got two parents, um, of course, um, <laughs> all, all together grew up in the northern suburbs of Perth, so um, just north of Joondalup in a, in a suburb called Kinra. So you know, very much, you know, a product of the, I want to say, typical British expat experience. So my parents, um, both born in the UK and, um, yeah, part of the, you know, suburb of Perth where they grew up, where I grew up you know sometimes you would kind of feel like you, <laughs> you were in um, not brighton in perth but you know it, it was good you know a grown up like, five minutes from the beach
1: so so what was it like what was it like because you clearly what you do you know it's it's a 24 hour a day clock essentially as you said earlier your, your job is about talking to people from various places around the world depending on their time zone so that that indicates that you have a, a certain level of work ethic right? Does that, does that come from your parents? Does that come from like self-driven? Like where does this idea of work ethic come from for you?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I was always taught by my parents and, and I was very lucky because I think, you know, sometimes when you go and study law or, you know, friends that have studied medicine, there's always these expectations on you um, that you've got to pursue a particular career you've got to join a particular law firm there's almost a sense when you do law that you have to you, you have to um basically recuperate your loss <laughs> you would have gone to go to study law and i guess the, it was going to practice law rather and and i guess i was lucky that my parents never really had those expectations they took more of the view that you know study and do what you enjoy what you're passionate about and if you do that you're more likely to succeed and plus work harder. So I was fortunate that, you know, whenever I had people, you know, telling me I should do this, do that, my, my parents and, and particularly my dad took the opposite view and they would say, well, well what what's gonna make you happy? What what do you want to do? And and I feel like that attitude really took off, you know, took off a whole lot of stress that comes with those expectations. And and really allowed me to to focus on on you know what I enjoy and and I've always believed that if you do what you enjoy you're more better to, to, you're more likely to do it well um, and the other is it doesn't feel like work I mean people say how do you how do you have this work ethic and and work so much on global citizen even even people at my work say that to me and and the simple view is is it doesn't feel like work and it it feels like a privilege and even six years late, later after first drawing a salary through this work, you know, it still feels like a privilege just to be able to get paid to do this. And, and maybe it's because my I started out as a volunteer and, and, and that's why, you know, I feel so lucky.
1: So what did your dad do then to, to give you or espouse these values of pursuit of, of, of purpose?
0: Yeah, so my, my dad's, um, he he's an electrical engineer. He um, trained in, in the UK and he actually works at the Department of Health um, and Path West so at the moment. So he's been working there for, for over a decade. But essentially, you know, Western Australia, it's such a big, diverse state and it's yeah. so large, um, particularly up north, you know, a lot of those hospitals you know, service such small communities that they have such small staffs, including they don't have someone there full time to service the, the equipment. So my father spends a lot of time flying around Western Australia, whether it's Dampier, whether it's down south to Esperance, but visiting essentially all these regional hospitals. And my mum, she's also, um, I guess, in the health system. She works with people with dementia, and and you know they they work hard, and but they've all they've always you know been very firm about. Quality family time as well and mm. time with their kids and then my my sister is well people often say you travel around and fly around but my sister is the true nomad she um, <laughs> in 2010 until recently she uh, she didn't really live anywhere she she uh, cycled around a lot in 2014 she cycled with her boyfriend also from Perth from France to China raising money for our, for Water Aid, and then just last year she did um, from Vancouver the so one end of Canada all the way to the other end in, in Halifax so you know that that's her story
1: and so I, this is what I think is interesting right you have a dad who's an electrical engineer now your mom does very high compassion focused work but both you and your sister have this sense of purpose around trying to help humanity so how has this developed I mean does this come from your mom and seeing your mom work with these these individuals who have dementia, and her patience and compassion, or, or I mean, you clearly are purpose driven, both you and your sister. So, I'm guessing it comes from your parents.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, my my sister, to be honest, I think she just had too many bad boyfriends in a row. <laughs> 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 and I'm, I'm heading off around the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, with me, you know, it, my story is an interesting one because. You know, when I was at primary school, I actually wasn't driven at all. And and people now look back and say, you know, you aspired to so much. But at primary school, I really didn't have that sense of work ethic at all. You know, I would come home and look forward every day to coming home, frankly, and playing PlayStation. Yeah. And I actually remember the start of high school. You know, I was so... So lacking in just any kind of ounce of aspiration that I remember, you know, the parent teacher even. So I remember going in with my mum, you know, my year eight teacher sat me down and and showed basically a ranking of all of the students in the class, and he showed that he showed that I was actually ranked, if not the bottom, but somewhere near the bottom, and basically said, you know, not not only as Michael. You know, at risk of not going to university. You know, which in itself was a big thing. I mean, on my mum's side, no one had ever gone to university before. I would become the first generation of that family to go to university. And in the area where she grew up in the UK, it was just not something you aspired to. You went straight to work. But anyway, he said, you know, not only is Michael at risk of not going to university, but even just finishing high school, you know, he's he's at risk if he carries on on this path and. You know, you would have thought that, that itself was a reality check, but it, but it wasn't.
1: How um, old were you, like 13? Like, yeah,
0: I was, I was 12, 10,
1: and 13. Do you care? And, like, do you care at 12 or 13? Like, you can't think past that next game on PlayStation, right? So, like,
0: In fact, people said, yeah, they said, wasn't that reality check? And I think I just shrugged my shoulders, you know? I <laughs> think we had to define economics, and clearly you were meant to write a, a thoughtful paragraph. There was all these lines. And I think I just wrote one sentence saying "It's about money <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I just, frankly, I wanted to finish and, yeah. and to the next thing um yeah no I, I I didn't care um and it was only a couple of months after that um we had to do an in class test, and we had to do it. We were doing history, and the test was about roaming gladiators and I'm not sure if you remember, but it was around that time, maybe a year later or so, um, after the movie Gladiator had come out with Russell Crowe, and and for whatever reason, history was the one thing that I was passionate about. I mean, I loved history, and I remember I just took this test, and you know, I, it wasn't it didn't feel like work, but I remember I just wrote about Roman gladiators to my heart's content, and you know, it was an in-class assignment. I got home from school. And my mum had this confused look on her face. And she said, there's a message on the answer machine. And it was actually from that teacher, the same teacher that had sat me down a few months before and, yeah. and showed me how I was ranked, Mr. Byrne, uh, who he was only 24. It was like his first teaching gig out of university. <laughs> and the message said, um, hi, Mrs. Sheldrick, addressed to my mum. I, I want to have a chat because I've noticed a change in Michael. And my first thought was, oh, that's kind of slightly creepy, what have I done wrong?
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what what was the trigger that, that you know, because to get into UWA, you know, you have to test well and, you know, it, it's like many of the universities, it's, it's it's based on your test scores at the end of, of year 12. So, so what was the what, trigger?
0: Well, the trigger was basically in that story, the message, you know, the reason why my mom had this confused look on her face was... Basically, he said not only did Michael top top the class, but he topped the year group and basically said, I think there's more to this guy than meets the eye. And he came in the next day and he said, you know, as a result of this test, you're now ranked third in the entire class. And I don't know what it was or, or where it came from, but if you're talking about trigger, it was probably the first time where I ever thought, what the heck? Let's give this a go. And I and I remember I asked him. I said, "Do you think I can be number one?" And he said, "You know, with a whole amount of work, yeah, I think you can." And I just thought it was the first time where I thought, you know, I've got nothing to lose. Maybe it was the same attitude I took towards PlayStation games. Maybe it became like a (laughs) game. I remember I would actually stay after school and I would write up these assignments. I would run it past him, and and he was very good. I remember we were doing an assignment about Antarctica and he kept on asking me, he said, go deeper, why? Challenge yourself, ask the question, why? And you know, sure enough, the last day or second last day of school, I think it was the night before the last day, I was sat on my lounge suite at home, but Mr. Byrne, actually I saw this car pull up in the driveway and it was Mr. Byrne getting out and I, and I went out. Also kind of creepy. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, I said, I said, uh, what are you doing here, Mr. Vern? And um, he basically just crunched the numbers, and uh, yeah, wanted to. He was driving past and wanted to give me this certificate, and he just said, "Well done, mate." Shook my hand, and he gave me a certificate with a uh, number one on it. And I think after that, you know, <laughs> the ambition was unleashed. And you know, four years later, I found myself, you know, finishing high school. Um, top of the class top of like 5 out of 6 of my subjects yeah. and you know found myself really being able to get into any course I wanted and I, I, and, and I always think back to that year and you know I've never well, lost and I some. think
1: him right like him he, 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 that's that story you hear of the teacher who who has that impact on someone's life to the point of where it actually fundamentally shifts
0: the trajectory
1: exactly. of where they're going like what? Have yeah. you ever written him? Have you ever written him since you've well, left? And
0: well, what's interesting is I, I never. It, it's funny. Sometimes once you get into university, you get in the rhythm. Sometimes you forget all those stories that made you. You know, you you, you forget all of those things, all those choices you had, and all of the influence certain people had in your life. And I, I actually hadn't given it that much thought until a few years later when we first got Global Citizen off the ground and we had some campaigns uh abc radio wanted to interview me I, a few years ago is made the young west australian of the year and they they wanted to talk about me and and um in, in the interview the guy said i don't want to hear about all the great stuff i want to hear about all the challenges he went through and and then it was just actually in that radio interview where i, I spoke about him for the first time mr Byrne. like it all came back and indeed Actually, this was over 10 years later. Actually, his mother-in-law was listening to that radio interview, put the pieces together. Because one thing I didn't say is he actually left that school at the end of year eight. So I only had him one year. Oh, wow. He moved on and I, and I never had him again. Basically, by the end of that day, of I me mean, given that interview, he had it and his mother-in-law had given it to him. And just before I moved back, sorry, to New York about four or five years ago, you know, I, I saw him and caught up with him and, and basically was able to thank him and say, you know, in no small part, am I, like, am I here due to you, basically.
1: That's awesome. So so as, as you go to UWA, though, what was the, what was the trigger for you to do – trigger is probably the wrong word. What was the deciding point for you to actually practice law?
0: Yeah, yeah. well – It's funny, there were two teachers that played a big role in my life, and I've spoken about one of them, Mr. Byrne. Um, The last year of school, I was doing English literature, and I had this amazing teacher, um, Alan Kemp, Um, who's now retired, lives happily in, in Tasmania with his partner, but he was very much of the view that education isn't just about an occupation, right? He took the view that education is more about a vocation, and the social impact you can have. And as I was getting all these grades, people again telling me what I should and shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. I asked them, you know, what do you think? What were you
1: hearing? Like, what were you hearing what you should and shouldn't do?
0: Firstly, I wanted to do an arts degree. I wanted, you know, to continue, you know, studying things like history, social issues, political science, international relations. Everyone told me just doing an arts degree is a bad idea. They said, you know, the the old stereotype of ended up um working at mcdonald's so then people were saying do it with commerce do it with all these things and you know it came down to doing it with commerce or law and he basically said you know michael resist the urge just to go out and earn lots of money i think you know you should study law because you find it enjoyable intellectually challenging and then finally he said and who knows you might actually make a difference along the way um, and then his other message was first day of university, um, uh, UWA is famed for its orientation day and in all of its stores. He basically said, make sure you sign up to everything to get the most out of, out of the
1: experience. And so were you the kid that was a part of like 12 different clubs and running around like a chicken with your head cut off? Yeah. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's <laughs> funny. It was reinforced again
0: on orientation day. We had a, Alan Robson was the vice chancellor then and he mm-hmm. made a good and he said you know if you if you go all the way through UWA and you come out the other end with just a certificate then basically you, you you failed you've not made the most of the experience and he really said you know UWA is known for its canvas quality so he even reinforced that and so yeah I did sign up to a lot but it's interesting quite quickly you you know you go to all of the sausage sizzles on campus all of the <laughs> to the arts union boot camp, um, which was an interest in experience as a 17 year old <laughs> so you go through all of his initial experiences and then basically wheedle down you know the the areas of interest that uh, you know find you i guess that, that you want to get involved in
1: And did you find that the clubs that you selected almost matched with what you're doing now in terms of compassion humanitarian based clubs
0: yes yeah, cer- certainly the ones that uh, yeah, I ended up getting really involved in there was this one there was a chapter of um, so there was a youth run aid and development Organization called the oak tree foundation and there was a uwa chapter that had been set up that year and You know that was one of the groups that I got heavily involved in whilst at university and you know in that first year you know it was very you know it, it took time to get involved but for instance the first year you know, we organized sausage sizzles. We we organized fundraisers at my old school. I organized a quiz night that raised about $1,000 for a school in Papua New Guinea. And then over time, you know, that involvement almost supplanted my studies, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I ended up going to East Timor through India, um, Bangladesh. Ended up, you know, lobbying, advocating to politicians as as part of it. And, you know, it just became such a broader... Um, experience and what I, you know, I, I would have said it was just about selling a few sausages and raising a couple of bucks, but it, it became much more than that and, and opened the world to all these experiences. But of course, UWA, you know, I feel like they're really unique in that they, they, re- they really do send, try to nurture that and, and encourage that. And indeed, the professors were, were very supportive um, as, as well.
1: Did you did you find it almost addicting? And what I mean by that is success begets success, right? So as you start going down this path of humanitarian work and you start seeing different situations that are less than ideal and you started raising money for them and then you start getting more exposed to them and then it started, it started driving you harder and like, did you feel like this almost, I don't know if addictive behavior is the right term, but almost this drive to expose yourself to more and to try to help more and did you see a cycle like that like the more you dove in the the more you wanted to get involved
0: yeah i i think so like like to your point it's almost like at first you know when i was organizing i remember that quiz night i organized and actually my mom and sister were great uh when you do a quiz night you have to give away all of this free stuff and um we basically went to the local shops and my mum and sister, <laughs> I remember, just came back. We basically asked everyone from, like, the coffee place through to Woolies, through to Coles. And we came back with all of this free stuff. And we had this whole our whole kitchen table was full of it. <laughs>
1: and,
0: uh, no one's going to come to this quiz night. You know, the room's going to be empty. And, and, you know, at the end of it, when it was successful, we had, like, 100 people come along. We had 10 tables to sell. You know, I thought, wow, like, you know, this stuff actually works. Um, you know, if you hustle, I want to say, and and know that there's a risk, no one comes. We'll we'll try and mitigate that and, and pick up the phone. You're in charge. And and yeah, to a certain extent, when you did that, you know, other ex- opportunities would come up. So through that, I met um, you know, I met a guy who actually is one of our co-founders. He was a he was a first year lawyer at Price Coopers at the time, and he was involved through that. Oak Tree experience at UWA as a as a kind of mentor and ended up, you know, inviting me to a conference and actually the Make Poverty History concert in Melbourne at the end of 2006 Um and UWA was great. I remember I had a an exam that day and they actually moved the exam a day earlier so I could fly um over there and he got PricewaterhouseCoopers Coopers to to pay for my flights because I, I couldn't afford it. And, you know, I remember going to this concert in Melbourne um, and seeing, you know, 15,000 people there, you know, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam was there, Bono. And I thought, wow, this is, this is huge. And it was all organized by, by young people. And I thought, you know, we don't have to wait until we finish university to make an impact here.
1: And so, you know, I kind of keep going back to, you know, for most people, there is, a, there is something in their childhood. You know that is a critical moment that, that puts them down a path and that you said your teacher was one of them but that was more about education so I'm trying to understand where this drive towards humanitarian you know, work really comes from I mean was it just the only things you stumbled into and it filled your soul or is it something you were exposed to as a child when you traveled around?
0: No, I mean, you know, it's in, it's interesting, you know, one of our co-founders, for instance, had that experience when he was, you know, 13 or 14. He was doing the World Vision 40-Hour Famine Challenge. He was the top fundraising school or ran the top fundraising school team in, in Australia. As part of that, they funded a trip for him to go to the Philippines, you know, and he had this, you know, Awakening, I suppose, or epiphany that this was something he was going to dedicate his life to. You know my mine was interesting because I had never actually, you know uh, seeing extreme levels of poverty. But you know, growing up, you know the school high school I went to in Perth, um you know was probably ranked towards the bottom. It was in an area of low socioeconomic standing. Um, there was a lot of family dysfunction. You know, you you, you saw still a, a lot of those issues. And I guess for me, you know, going back to Mr. Byrne and that experience at the start of high school, you know, one thing I I didn't say is is before that I, I also had a slight speech impediment. And kids can be in, incredibly cute, <laughs> so be incredibly yeah. cute. and you know you'd get bullied and. You know, that would affect my self-esteem. It would affect my confidence. Um, you know, even things like kicking a football, you know, became very hard because I was almost so conscious um, of everyone watching me or, or felt like everyone was watching me that inevitably, you know, I just wanted to kick a normal ball or even just miss a, a goal normally and inevitably I would kick it and it would go in the opposite direction. Okay. And, and, and what was interesting is years later when I was finishing um, high school, And I was getting into UWA, and I was in the top one percent of the state. And everyone was telling me how smart I was, you know, how talented I was. I really didn't feel that in the inside, you know. Mm. I I guess to a certain extent, I never that feeling of you know being a loser or everyone telling you you're dumb, stupid, lazy, whatever. You're not going to amount to anything. It it never really went away. And I and I guess for me, it it almost became a compare and contrast in that. You know, I was able to, yes, okay, I got good grades, I I got into law, but at the same time, you know, I knew, if you like, where I came from and the difference that someone like Mr. Byrne made in my life. And so, you know, I was never under any illusions that really I'm, I'm probably just average ability. But I had this great teacher that invested in me, and you know, basically said if you work hard, you know, look, look what you can achieve. And so I, I guess I was grateful for that. And it just occurred to me as I got into that first year at university, as I signed up to groups like tree in that there are millions of children, not just in Australia and around the world, um, who are very bright, very talented, very intelligent. But through no fault of their own, because they lack a great teacher like Mr. Byrne, or they lack a school in general, or maybe it's because they lack a thirteen cent vaccine and die before their fifth mm-hmm. birthday before even able to get into school, but they're never be able to fulfil their potential. So I guess so I, my drive comes from a sense of uh, appreciation and and gratitude of, of the opportunities I had and knowing that, you know, we are we we are in the top I suppose, of of the world's population.
1: Well, and, uh, you know, um, kind of breaking that up a little bit, you know, I think one of the reasons why perhaps, and I don't know if this is true or not, I'm just speculating here, is that that you're drawn to humanitarian, is that you see the injustice in the world, and that injustice is kind of rooted to you as a child who'd been made fun of, put down, made to feel stupid, and that you didn't belong, and that you may have carried that forward in the way to, like, think about... Humanitarian crises around the world children who are dying young for, for polio disease or uh, Malaria or whatever and that helps drive you somewhere inside to say everyone has a shot an opportunity because you never felt like you did And I relate to you so much about not feeling like you kind of belong right at certain parts of your life I mean I have um, by all all accounts overly overly over succeeded any expectations of of anyone who's met me so I have I have a PhD I have a master's in research I have an MBA you know like I I I am not what you would say academic by nature I barely graduated college um, with a 25 and I don't know what that would be in, in your guys's GPA because I know the parlance is different but yeah, yeah. that's not that's not good and so like I always just felt like, even everything I've done, there's still a level of me that that feels like at 43, like I am that 10 year old child that doesn't belong in the conversation. And I think what's awesome about what you're doing is that you seem to at least on the surface in this conversation, have taken that and have utilized that for the greater good of humanity, which probably fills your soul. And feels who you are to give you the confidence that you're doing something that's making an absolute difference on a daily basis. So this is really a compliment that I'm giving you about what you're doing, and I can totally relate to you on so many levels through that through that that thought process.
0: Yeah, and and I, and I would say it certainly didn't start on a global level. I mean, people say, you know, how how did you go from there to now? Meeting with world leaders, you know, working on these global challenges, working with the United Nations here in New York, but it actually started very local. I think some of the first things I did when I, you know, realized, you know, was felt challenged to go out and, you know, similar to what you said, take on those injustices, you know, it was a whole bunch of actual local things. It was things like I remember I went door knocking and fundraised for the Salvation Army's Red Shield Appeal. I, I did things like ran in, in the Relay for Life. We had a school team and we did it for 24 hours. You know, it was, it was just that sense of, you know, where I could use of my skills, contribute to alleviate the suffering of others. And then, you know, as I signed up to these organizations at UWA and kind of matched that with a more global awareness, you know, I then steadily got involved, I guess, with, it, with these issues, you know, at a, at a global level as well.
1: So talk to me about, you know, the Global Citizen, right? Like how it started, um, how your role has evolved. So where did this whole organization start?
0: Yeah, so, so the, the, it was based on the premise. It started about 10 years ago. And I, and I mentioned, you know, the work we were doing at Tree And about, it was 10 years ago, actually. Um, we did a campaign. Um, it was during the 2007 election. It was just, um, it was the election Kevin Rudd was elected prime minister, and at the time, um, we we slowly came to the appreciation that just raising dollars on a street corner or doing quiz nights was very valuable and would raise, you know, quite a few thousand. If we really wanted to change, you know, the systems and structures that kept people living in poverty. we we discovered that public policy could play a much bigger role. And at the time, in 2007, globally, you know, there was a push on because of, you know, the campaigns, Make Poverty History campaigns taking place in the UK, US and others, that there was this big investment in foreign aid. And countries were really increasing the amount. There was a sense that with the turn of the millennium, it was unjust that any child anywhere should live in poverty, um, you know, have act, not have access to basic education, you know, the basic essentials of life. But in Australia, this, this sense of awareness politically hadn't taken place yet. And, you know, when I go back 10 years ago, Australia was ranked 19 out of 20 of the world's richest countries and how little it gave in, in overseas aid. And so we decided that we, we were going to do something about it. And the campaign we ran um, involved bringing together a thousand young people on a road trip essentially to Canberra to meet with politicians. And so I was essentially involved in organizing the West Australian lake of that where we brought together, you know, a hundred people. And, you know, we we would go door, knock doors, campaign. You know, we would run things like workshops you know, a lot of these were young teenagers, some high schoolers, but very passionate about about the issue. And at the end of that campaign, Kevin Rudd essentially committed that he would double the aid budget if he was elected prime minister which he subsequently was elected um and he subsequently did his government or or later iterations of that government did keep that promise although now (laughs) a decade (laughs) the status of that and i just say uh let's not talk about that
1: (laughs) (laughs) there were some contentious moments there between him and and, uh julia i can't remember her last name gallard i think it is um yeah we,
0: we haven't quite gone back to where we were but um yeah, we, we, we did for a short while Australia <laughs> made its way from rank 19 to being in the top generous countries in, in the world.
1: Can I ask you a question, though? And I always and this is his devil's advocate question. Um, and I, so I'm totally curious about it. So this, I, I see this happens a lot, right? People get this anchoring and this desire to help humanity. And they, they start trying to work on the global basis, work in Asia, Southeast Asia, India, um, Africa, and they raise all this money. But what about domestically? You know, mm. I just think of the U.S. and the U.S. has tons of issues domestically, from you know poverty to education to diet. I mean, all sorts of issues. Could the argument also be that you know you're you're raising money for global issues that essentially are the same issues that probably could be could be helped in Australia?
0: You know. If you had asked
1: campaigners
0: ten years ago, they would have they would have said that these issues were very different. They would have said that when you talk about extreme poverty, you're talking about those that live on less than two dollars a day. Sure. Um, yes, there's forms of poverty in the U.S. Australia, but um, you know, extreme poverty. You know, this is really the bottom of the bottom. You know, poor Collier Absolutely. and Oxford with call it the he called it the bottom billion and you know really in this day and age what that meant is really yes it was about living on less than two dollars a day but not being able to earn enough to make basic choices about the way you live your life everything becomes a trade-off between education for my kids or do I put money away for the next time one of them gets sick so people did treat it very differently and there is an argument um, you know that the issues are slightly different that extreme poverty is most perverse most worst form of injustice today and and it's outrageous and and the worst fact is that we actually have the tools to be able to eradicate it that said you know i think as time's gone on you know what i have now learned and come to an appreciation of is is actually you know a lot of the issues are similar um, in developed societies. You know, you look at the United States a few years ago, there was the water contamination in Flint, Michigan, for example. Or you look at, you know, the hurricanes that have recently taken place. You know, Puerto Rico is, is a U.S. territory,
1: right? It's, it's, it's part of... United you you wouldn't know it, by the way it's being treated.
0: No, you, you wouldn't know it, but it, but it is. And so you look at these issues and how communities respond. What I now say is, to a certain extent, you know, there is a spectrum, and all countries are developing countries on that spectrum. Now, some of them, sure, are right near the the top, like, um, you know, uh, the Nordic countries, sure, at one end of the spectrum. But if you ranked out all 193 countries... The United States, in terms of its livelihoods, human development, living standards, would actually be ranked 42nd, which um, would mean that there's, you know, not only is every other developed country a- ahead of it, but even some emerging developing countries are um, as well. And and my view is, is you know, we've got to be very careful in our campaign in that we don't create a false dichotomy where essentially we're, we're going back and forth between, you know, one vulnerable group's needs versus another to say one is more important than the other. And so what I say is it's actually important that we speak about them as both being interconnected, you know, a form of inequality is the same in the United States as it is everywhere. And if we don't do that, we actually we actually risk, you know, alienating some of the public. In say communities like Australia, United States, he feel agree. If we will alienate that community, they will get they will see you know end in extreme poverty as an elitist idea, a zero sum game that it means you're taking resources away from that you know and 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 it will become a, a distraction. So my view is, if we're going to end extreme poverty, we need the public with us. So we need to make sure we're sensitive to their concerns as well, and and don't basically say these people's needs are greater than yours, you know, because I feel like we will, we will lose the public if we do
1: that. Well, and, and this is my ignorance, right? So please set me correct when I make this following statement. But extreme poverty and poverty in, let's say, Australia, because since this is predominantly going to be an Australian podcast, the the dollar amount is different, but the outcome is, is, as, is as significant, if that makes sense. So... Cool. You know, people in Australia, if you think aboriginals is a great example, many of them are in extreme poverty, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that subculture. And I, I feel like I make it a huge generalization, but, you know, having been to Darwin and some other towns, like it, it seems like it's almost like the equivalent to the American Indian from a poverty standpoint, from a culture standpoint. And then to me, it seems like as a citizen of that said country, we're, we're neglecting our own citizens in in creating cultures and, and infrastructures socially as well as, as economically to allow them to to change their trajectory. And I'm trying to be very careful. I don't want to say any insensitive words here, and I feel like I might because I'm not good with my language at times. But yeah. I think the point I'm trying to make is that poverty, whether it's in India or in Australia, the dollar amount, if you take the, wipe that away, the outcome to me always seems similar. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, look... I- yeah. And please I, I, set me set me straight if I'm completely being an asshole right now, by the way. I, I don't okay. mean to. No,
0: no. The the outcome, you're right. You know, the poverty line is is different. And the thing with extreme poverty is, you know, it's currently defined by the World Bank as a dollar ninety a day, you know, taking into account inflation mm-hmm. and other things. You know, that is that is the same around the world. But countries of course have their own national poverty lines. And and you are right that, you know um the national poverty line would obviously be higher than the extreme poverty line but in a society like australia the difference you know could still be you know people not having the the, the basic essentials to make decisions um you know about their life you know yeah. i feel like in in australia you know my my view is is that there's enough to do both you know this aiming, you know policy makers making better decisions about where they choose to tax resources you know i i look back over the mining boom of the last 10 years and i think you know my my view is is it's almost scandalous and future generations will look back and essentially and rightfully so what say where did all the money go you know did it foreign shareholders how much of that came here so you know my view is if, if tax systems work in the right way tax avoidance issues like that at systemic level is addressed you know then I mean, we should be able to address both of these issues but it's not helpful when politicians you know often populist politicians try and trade one group off against the other mm-hmm. you know one vulnerable groups needs against against another of if, if it's a zero-sum game i always remember meeting with penny wong when she was Minister for Climate Change, you know, this has gone back years, and it was when I was first starting out as an activist, and she said she hates the fact that when she goes to the Tory Strait Islands, and, you know, these, these are communities that stand to be the most hit by climate change, that she hates the fact that because of the rhetoric of certain politicians that are out there, that the very first question these people ask is, why is money going overseas, you know, that could be used right here in this community? And the reality is, she made a good point, is that that money going overseas was to mitigate and help other communities adapt to climate change. So it was going into the same problem anyway that would would, 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 would help them eventually. And I feel like, you know, one thing that has to be made more, particularly in this day and age, is the case for openness. You know, the thing I was saying before is, yes, trade has has um, displaced a lot of people, but trade has also been the greatest um, mover of people out of poverty in China and India in the last two decades, but not just in China and India. You know, when you look at Australia, for instance, open trade has actually benefited Australia, led to real increases in livelihoods, living standards, Um, it's, it's led to better wages, and And frankly, you know it, it's led to better social outcomes as 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 well. So there, you know in in terms of Australia's situation, trades actually actually worked in 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 its sector, you, are you know making and- that
1: coffee <laughs> <laughs> uh, And I think that all makes sense. I was just got kind of me thinking like, do you is your is your I mean, I know that you are uh, policy and advocacy. But do you have a special interest in a particular area of humanitarian aid help? You know,
0: I I feel like one of the areas you know I'm I'm very passionate about just because it was the first real campaign I, I worked on at, at Global Citizen is, is polio eradication. You know, it's pretty unique. In in 1988, which was the year I was born, all of the worlds came together and said you know we need to eradicate this disease and and put that in perspective at that time this was a disease that paralyzed and maimed at least 300,000 people a year that that's the cases that we know about and yet in my lifetime alone through the leadership of groups like Rotary International UNICEF WHO and others we've eradicated that disease by 99.9% and you know if we're successful and there is a push to bring the number of cases to zero by the end of the year there's only been 11 cases this year touch touch wood and to bring the number of cases by the end of a decade to zero and say the world is polio free that endeavor would basically lead to the second human disease in history to be eradicated the only other human disease of course to be eradicated being smallpox in 1979 mm-hmm. so you know as i look back how do we inspire people how do we show that this, this stuff is possible? How does it work? How do we reinvigorate public opinion behind all these other endeavors? I can think of a greater story to do that than the eradication of polio. I mean, it, 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 it's amazing. And you, you think of all of the people who's contributed to that. I've been fortunate enough to have health workers um, in Pakistan and in India. You know, young women on the front lines. You know that in, in itself is, is a social movement. And so my message to people when when I campaign around that is, you know, stand in solidarity with these extraordinary health workers and and play a small role in in what in what is history being being made. Um, and so for me, that that's obviously one which um, you know <laughs> everyone always says to me. Oh, he always brings finds a way of bringing it back to polio. Or bring <laughs> uh, you know, it, it remains to be seen. Years ago when I got involved, I said I would like to see the last case of polio by the time I'm 30. Um, I'm 29 now. We're, we're down to just 11 cases. So we'll see. Uh, we've still mm-hmm. got some challenges in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan, but we're, we're also seeing encouraging progress. Um, the, the other issue which I'm passionate about Um, And it's not the most sexiest topics, but equally fascinating is actually sanitation, right? You know, access to toilets, uh, access Mm to clean water. Let's
1: eliminate so many diseases when you have uh, just a rudimentary sanitation system?
0: Exactly, exactly. Uh, Someone once said to me that in the 20th century, the two greatest um, health breakthroughs in terms of impacts on lives saved Second was vaccines, Number one was was proper sanitation. But really, for the same reason as polio, you know, as I got exposed to the issue, and I remember being in Madagascar a few years ago. You know, it's got the same aspect of social movement. You meet these people who, you know, you want to talk about work ethic. They work day in day out, and they're just so passionate around these issues. And and actually, you know, one of the most amazing campaigns. I've ever had the pleasure of being part of was last year, I spent three months essentially living in India and on World Toilet Day, uh, which is November 19, we had, um, you know, what Rolling Stone would describe as the biggest concert of its kind to ever take place in India, which was essentially, you know, to promote universal access to sanitation or um, as Coldplay said at the time, Chris Martin, he said, uh, when we announced the concert, he said it's also taken place on World Toilet Day, which makes a lot of sense for those of you that associate Coldplay with toilets. <laughs> <laughs> These,
1: this next set of questions are really about, about the crux of this Pursue Inclusion UWA initiative. And the first one is, you know, in a world where, as you know all too well in the U.S. and in New York, you know, in a world where Discord gets all of the headlines, do you believe that most people in the world actually really want inclusion? I I do. I feel like, you know, when
0: I look at Global Citizen um, and I look at our audience, and we now have an audience of around 30 million engaged people on a monthly basis, I feel like there is there is a yearning there. And sure, there's uh, the temptation to, you know, um, fall prey to, you know, Reword slogans and and all the vitriol and hatred that goes along with it, but I, I believe you know that's just a blip, and I believe if you look at you know the history of humanity, there is a there is a trend um, towards you know more openness, more tolerance, more diversity. It's not mean to say that there's challenges against that um, when mm-hmm. certain people arrive uh, to challenge humanity, but you know, just from the people we engage with in the audience, you know, we've seen record levels of engagement this year um, in terms of being involved and saying that, no, we are one humanity. Um, What happens on one side of the world can affect us here. Um, You know, so it's important to invest. You know, I I, I see that and and I see that in developed countries. You know, I saw that in, in India and in other countries last year. And I feel like, Actually, if you want to look at global citizenship and those saying, you know, we're all in this together, actually in places like Nigeria, it's growing faster than in, in traditional developed countries.
1: So, so why do you think we need inclusion? Like, wh- why is that a necessity for this world to go around?
0: Well, I feel like, um, you know, there's, there's, there's the arguments of justice. There's the arguments that when you know, societies are functioning on an inclusive level when they don't have um, degrees of poverty, when they don't have issues around inequality, they're, they're more peaceful, they're more safer. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you don't have inclusive societies, and let's just look at, you know, children who are currently displaced from the civil war in Syria, for instance. You know, you look at children in displaced camps like um, Lebanon, Jordan, you know, Turkey you know, if, if we don't make sure that those children's needs are met, that they're not included in education systems, you risk losing a generation there. And, and not just a generation that's lost in terms of their own ability to fulfil their potential, but, but you risk alienating many of them. And, and, you know, where do people go when they feel alienated? You know, it's exactly um, to, to the kinds of groups that breed fear, that, that um, p- persecute others, that orchestrate terrorist events so it's actually in our interest for a safer world to invest Mm -hmm. in measures to frankly um, as the un sustainable development goals um, the catch of them attest make sure that no one's left behind and if you want to put a hard economic cap on it then it's also economically the best thing to do as well for for economic growth you know, countries, sure, can grow so much, but if you look at a lot of middle-income countries, a lot of the economic growth, even if it's if on the surface it looks really high, like almost double-digit levels, is very concentrated in particular areas. Um, and so if you actually include the other areas, you know, and get them on the wheels of, of the economy, have them participate in, then actually you can actually... You know, inclusive growth could actually lead to to more outcome, more output as, as as a whole. So economically, you know, probably billions are being lost through you know not not ensuring not not adopting inclusive policies.
1: So so how do you how do you for yourself at least how do you foster inclusion in the workplace that you do? You know, I feel
0: like in inclusion is is many things. It's, it's policies, you know, around gender diversity. But it's also about fostering participation. And in today's age, innovation is so crucial to growth. And so therefore, making sure that you seek a range of ideas and people feel that they can participate and offer ideas is, is crucial. You know, at Global Citizen, we wouldn't be where we were today without um, unconventional ideas. Um, being innovative in our use of technology and if we thought you know just those that have been part of it since the start had all of the answers we wouldn't have been able to do any of that so you know for example you know we have a partnership with uwa where we take two interns each year um, and uwa very kindly um, provides funding for them gives them credit but when i when they come i say you're not an intern and I actually make sure that they don't put that on their email signature. I say, you're, you're part of the team. And, you know, if we've got brainstorms or ideas or even external meetings, I'll bring them along and ask them afterwards what their ideas are, but also ask them to put them forward in, in the meeting because it's only through that exchange of ideas and really making sure there's a diverse, you know, pool of ideas, and so you can bounce them around, that we're, we're, we're going to grow. That's um, awesome. Yeah.
1: So I have, I have two more questions, and that's it, and then you're done, you're off the hook, get out of here. Uh, <laughs> so, next question. I think that that many people, and I'm sure you see this all the time, never go beyond diversity in their thinking about inclusion. They just kind of say, oh, I'm with a, I'm with a diverse group, but they don't really think about how including those people. So, I guess, how do we create a society that does more than just accept differences, where people can engage constructively with each other, when each other can be can really embrace the differences as part of their as part of their life. that's a tough question. Yeah,
0: I'm just trying to. Um, so, so what you're what you're asking? Um, is that often,
1: often in life, we we can say, "Yeah, I'm in a diverse community, right? There are African Americans, there's Hispanics, there's this, there's that." But inclusion is kind of that next step of including them in them you're you're in their life and vice versa in terms of culture um uh norms things like that and i guess the question is is that how can we engage in just a, a conversation that goes beyond embracing differences and moves to inclusion
0: yeah i mean i mean the uh, the salesman in me would say very simply like <laughs> download, download global citizen um and get on our app
1: <laughs> have, perfect have no no perfect yeah yeah, yeah. so that's yeah. one way to do it right like you guys you guys specialize in this and you want to help people understand the differences around the world and how they can be part of it not just stare at it from a distance
0: yeah exactly but no listen i feel like someone once said to me be careful at promoting tolerance because tolerance itself you know, what are you really saying that we tolerate the existence of these other groups? And, you know, there is a risk that you, you, you do create a society in which, you know, groups, let's just say, are tolerant of each other, tolerate each other's existence, but don't, don't really engage. And I actually feel, and I've seen this a lot when I go to places like London, even, even to a certain extent here in, in New York City, but, but lesser, I actually feel an appreciation when I go back to Australia, you know, about there is a success story to Australia's multicultural system, and it's really built on the fact that it's tried to go beyond that one step of mutual, if you like, tolerated existence in terms of actual inclusion and and engagement. And, you know, people say to me all the time, you know, why do you engage celebrities Why do you, you know, partner with with sporting codes? Like just literally on Friday I was in Stanford, Connecticut, at the headquarters of the World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE. (laughs) How does that measure with your work when you're trying to end extreme poverty? And the reality is, is because, you know, that's how we get public conversations going. We need that piece we need we need that mainstream in well, because pop uh,
1: culture is influence right and so if you yeah. can if you can capture the influencers that's gonna move the message way more dramatically than it, just you guys
0: exactly like people watch WWE you know across America for instance across the world whether you're in a Republican state or a Democrat state or a purple state you know and that's where we need to be having those conversations you know, we, we engage popular culture so we can have those conversations outside of New York, so we can have them in Kentucky, so that we can have them in Perth, so that we can even have them in, I suspect, you know, and we've even been working on it in Dubai or Abu Dhabi or, or the UK or Europe or, or indeed in India or Bangladesh or, or South Africa or Argentina or Montreal. You know, it doesn't matter... So that's where we need to be having those public conversations because if we don't, you know, it amazes me about all the NGOs I meet who are in their own bubble or their own echo chamber, you know, then you are, you are also at risk of excluding people from your work, not engaging them. And, and frankly, not, not building public support for all the wonderful policies you, you, you adopt. So, you know, one of the ways that you can have um, these conversations and, and, and build inclusive participatory societies is, is frankly, through popular culture. And, and people are cynical about it. I know people are saying, do, do people like Chris Martin or Rihanna, do they really care about education? Which they do. I, I can say that. But, but reality is, is, is the results speak for themselves. Um, you know, Rihanna, um, with her 70 million Twitter followers, fourth largest following in the world, you know, is able to take them along with her when she goes to Malawi, when she sees the work on the ground, and also when she says, well, this is a great travesty, Justin Trudeau, President Macron, Theresa May, what are you actually going to do about it? And, and they may not listen to one person, but I guarantee you, they listen to 70 million people on their door.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. All right, last question, and you are off. Michael, for what you do, who you are, and where you're at, how do you define happiness?
0: <laughs> um, you know, for me, I feel like it, it's that sense of fulfillment when you know, you've been working on a long project for a long time, you've put a lot of hours into it, and you have that moment, you know, at the end of that project when you realize this is complete, when you get to look at your results. But for me, it's always when you get to look at all the people on your team who have helped contribute to that and seeing their expressions, seeing how they feel. You know, that that to me, when I think about, you know, if I, like, if you want to say the, the happiest moments in the last 12 months, it's, it's usually been those moments. So those rare moments when you take a pause from one project to another and just, you know, get to celebrate what you've achieved. And, that, and that's very important. Um, sometimes in today's society when we're all Russian, we don't do that enough. But, yeah, when you actually take a pause and, and reflect, and, and it's not about what I've done, it's what we've done together and, and seeing other people realize that that as well it's um yeah it's it's special
1: thank you michael sheldrick i want to say thank you for your time energy and willingness to sit down with me on the pursue inclusion uwa podcast series no worries
0: thanks james We hope you enjoyed listening to UWA alumni's
1: Pursue Inclusion episode. Make the commitment to leave no one behind by taking part in our movement towards an inclusive society. Stand up for inclusion on November 4th. Details on the website, pursueinclusion.uwa.edu.au.